0: Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, while in our study of Romans chapter 6, you might remember that Paul challenged the church to not offer the parts of our body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Now, in explaining this in that text, uh, one of the body parts that I brought up was the tongue, because there are many body parts. I I chose to bring up the tongue. Well, knowing that this is something that the church, to be honest with you, uh, and I mean the church meaning the body of Christ in general, uh, needs to be reminded of all the time, uh, I chose to speak on that today. So we're going to be speaking about the tongue today. So if you would, open your Bibles to James chapter 3. Coming into chapter 3, as many of you probably know uh, this book, James is, is, is leaving a very challenging section of Scripture in chapter 2, which I'm sure then, as it will today, steps on a lot of people's toes. In chapter 2 of James, he deals with the evidence of those who claim to have faith, or if you will, those who profess to be Christians. As you know, just because someone professes to be a Christian does not mean they actually are. Matthew chapter 7, which I also brought up a couple of weeks ago, deals with this as well. In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who claims faith in Christ, not everyone who says praise Jesus, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I always key in on two words. There's the guy at first where he says, not everyone who says, but it is only those who do, right? And the doing is not a way of salvation. It is an effect. It is the evidence of your salvation. But the point of that passage is that there are many people who will stand before God and will be cast into outer darkness because they did not know Christ, even though they claimed to. Back in James chapter 2, it was made clear in verse 14, verse 17, verse 20 and 26, that holding a faith that does not produce any change in your life is a faith that is useless. It is a faith that James calls dead. It is a dead faith. Twice, James uses the phrase, what good is it? Pretty much in that sense. What good is it? And he then actually gave an example in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I just want to read it real quick, just as a reminder to us. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, there are those words, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Kind of reminds you of saying, oh, hey, I know you're homeless, I know you have no food, but I'll pray for you. It's, that's the same thing. We, we, we pat ourselves in the back because we think we're good because we're going to pray for somebody. And that's just an excuse to get out of helping somebody. But here, the point is that real saving faith is not uh, just the talk, right? It's not just the, uh, the talk, but it's the walk. It's about the evidence of one's salvation. I don't care if it's your neighbor. I don't care if it's your co-worker. It doesn't matter if it's the person sitting next to you right now. They can claim to have faith. They can claim to be a Christian all they want but it is only going to be validated by a lifestyle that matches that profession. Okay? This is why Paul challenged the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 13:5. He challenged them and said, "Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith." Please understand, folks, he's telling that to the church. Okay? Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. You see, what they were claiming was very different than what Paul was seeing. And that's why he says those things. And lastly, even if you are very certain of your salvation, you have total assurance that you absolutely have been born again. I hope that just a reminder of chapter 2, or if not, go back and read chapter 2, as well as other scriptures will, will encourage you to look, look at your own life, right? And for those who see you every single day, typically your coworkers, hopefully they will say without question that your words, your actions, your lifestyle absolutely matches up with what you profess. Because Lord knows we hear a lot of the opposite, don't we? We mentioned last week, I think I was talking to Aaron in our Bible study, where the second you tell anybody you're a Christian, they will watch you like a hawk. Lord willing, when they watch you, they'll say, you know, there's something different about you. You know, What you say is what you do. And that is our goal, to honor the Lord and bring glory to Him through that lifestyle. Well, if that doesn't make you think about your life as a whole, then maybe what James talks about at the beginning of chapter 3 will. And what he's going to say in our study this morning is bound, I'm sure, to test every single person who hears it because he's now going to discuss the use of the tongue. The use of the tongue. So if you're there in James 3, read with me verses 1 through 6. He says, "...not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man." Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now besides the fact that Overall, meaning here in chapter 3, James is going to actually take 12 verses to deal with the subject matter of the tongue. To show you how important it is, he brings this subject up in every single chapter. Every chapter, and here of course, are at least 12 verses. But he brings it up, so obviously it's a very important issue. Now if you wonder why James has such a focus... On this, it might be because the use of the tongue, or if you will, our speech or what comes out of our mouth seems to be the most difficult part of our body to control. I'm sure our minds are a close second, but our tongues seems to be the most difficult. Matter of fact, right here in James chapter 3, verse 8, James says, No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mentioned a a couple weeks ago in our study how, uh, in Romans, how the tongue can be used to lie, to slander, to mock. It can make false accusations. It can use profane words. It can blaspheme God. It can destroy relationships. And of course, you can just keep going with that. Listen to the ways that Scripture negatively describes the use of the tongue. All these words come from Scripture talking about the tongue. Wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering. By the way, if you want any of these words, come up to me later. Slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boastful, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, that's worldly sensuality, and of course, vile. All the things that Scripture itself uses to describe the tongue. That's pretty bad, isn't it? That's a pretty bad list of things. But you know what, folks? And here's here's the kicker. The tongue only does what our hearts tell it to, doesn't it? It's like, oh, that's stepping on another toe, isn't it? The tongue only does what our hearts tell it to. Okay, Right here in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it talks about how each person is tempted when, look at the words he uses, by his own evil desires. In other words, don't blame this on God. Each one is tempted when his own evil desires he is dragged away. And he is enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What does it start with? It starts with our own evil desires. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart, going back to the heart, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. You kind of see what I'm getting at here? What's going on in the heart? So being that our our tongue comes from the heart, it's also a very good barometer of where someone is at spiritually, isn't it? Absolutely. You listen to people talk, (laughs) it'll give you a hint of where they're at, spiritually speaking. Jesus says in Matthew 12, Verses 34 through 37, that a man's words reveal his character. Talking to the Pharisees, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? He says, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what I was talking about a minute ago, right? The mouth simply speaks what our hearts tell it to. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil out of the evil that is stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted And by your words, you will be condemned. Those are very tough words, aren't they? Take that thought and look with me at verse 1. He says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, even though he he begins here in this section of Scripture, and uh, it applies really to all of us this morning, he begins, as you can see, speaking to those who are teachers and those who may want to be teachers. And the reason James calls for such reservation, in other words, his his rationale for saying, I want you guys to think about this for a minute, is that a teacher's essential instrument is is what, everybody? Our tongue. Our tongue. And as you know, our tongue has a great influence. It can also easily mislead people. You might have some, even though they're sincere, sincere people, but they're not ready to be teachers. You might also have those who want to prestige in their minds of being a teacher but they're absolutely not qualified. Just because someone has the zeal, sometimes we look at zeal, but folks, zeal can many times have no wisdom involved. It's just nothing but zeal. But sometimes you can have zeal, but you have no understanding of God's word. You cannot be sharing it with others, okay? God's word is not a toy to be played with. No, not everybody should be a teacher, see? And the problem here, and why James is making this point, is that it's already happening here in our text, okay? Because this verse, as you can see, is written in the negative, right? It starts off by saying, not many of you. It's written in the negative. And because the verb, presume, or as some of you might have, um, might have the word, become, It's in the present tense. The negative in the present tense is saying, stop being many teachers. That's what the Greek says. Stop being many teachers. It's already going on. They're lining themselves up to be teachers. And to quote D. Edmund Hebert, he says there was a movement on the part of many back in the day to pose as teachers. And he says, this has to be halted. And James is simply coming out and saying, stop it. He's not just saying, hey, let's not do this. Stop it. Stop it. Now, there's certainly a good chance that a lot of this stuff got started because of the nature of the early church. You see, back then, when most people gathered for worship, they were permitted to contribute something if they felt the need. In the middle of the service, somebody else would share, somebody else would teach, somebody else would say certain things. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 14 verses 26 through 34, we see this. Paul there had to talk about the order of worship because of all the people who were speaking in that service. This is that section that many people know simply because it says women ought to remain quiet in the service. This is where a lot of people go, oh yeah, I know that text. But it was going on in the churches during that time. It was very normal, see? The freedom that people had to speak at that time prompted them to become teachers without being qualified or simply even recognizing their responsibility. It's not not a weekly book club where you can share your views and your opinions on what the book is saying or what you got out of it. It is the Word of God. And therefore, what does James say? He says, stop it, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Why is that? Well, number one, you're a mouthpiece for God. Understand that. When you teach, when you stand in a pulpit anyway, you are a mouthpiece for God. Number two, being a teacher, you are more bound to obey what you teach. The church doesn't want to have hypocrites, do they? We all are to a certain degree. But The last thing you want to see is somebody up here being a flat-out hypocrite. You are bound to what you teach. And then thirdly, bottom line is you can mislead people into error. Okay? You might think that you have it all together, but you're flat-out ignorant when it comes to Scripture. Once again, I don't care how zealous a person may be. The last thing that God wants is for a person to give a false opinion or a false belief or a false doctrine upon an unsuspecting Christian. Because there are many people who listen to the person up here and say what they say is absolute gospel. And how dare you think anything different? I mean, trust me, folks. Especially for younger, younger Christians, the very first person that they hear teach them, that is what they're going to believe. If somebody comes up to them two weeks later and says, well, that's not necessarily true, let me show you in Scripture, they won't believe you because they're going to listen to that first person who told them that. It's very easy, and many people do it today, whether they want to or not, but they are deceiving many Matter of fact, Paul even told his young protege, as we all know, Timothy, he told him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Timothy, I want you to do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who does what? who rightly divides or who correctly handles the word of truth. Those words mean to accurately or skillfully cut through. I like to say the word to dissect the word of God, to exegete the word of God, as you're talking about those three verses. He says, that's that's what I, I need for you to do. That's how I want you to stand before God, somebody who does that correctly because of what it is. Seth has been talking about it. It is the very word of God. So James is indicating here in verse 1, I don't care who you are. I don't care how smart you think you are. Or even if people just really enjoy listening to you, he says at the beginning of verse 2, look at guys, we all stumble in many ways. You almost think that should be with verse 1. But he says we all stumble in many ways. That word stumble there means to, it means to fall. It means to get tripped up, okay? Now, figuratively speaking, he's basically saying here, we all sin. And of course, the sin in this text is coming from the use of the tongue. It's what we say. We can fail, right? And when he says we stumble in many ways, right? Once again, he's talking about the tongue here. He says we stumble in many ways. As you know, I mentioned some earlier, there is a variety of ways that we can fall short. We can dishonor God with our tongue. You can tell an off-colored story, an off-colored joke. I can't stand when somebody says, before they they say what they're going to say, they say, excuse my French. Well, you know what's coming, right? Right? Somehow, you know, it's just a joke, obviously, but I'm like, oh, so French allows you to use profanity because that's what's going to happen. But you can talk about an off-color joke, an off-color story, profanity, vulgarity, gossip. That's not one that Christians think about too much. Gossip. You can deceive people or you can tell them flat-out lies, but I want you to know they all go into the same category. If if you're deceiving somebody, you're getting them to think something different than what is true. That's just a lie. And there are, of course, many, many others. And the fact that he says, we all stumble, means that teachers are no exemption. There's no exemption. The difference is that when it comes to a teacher, it doesn't just affect them. It also affects those in whom they teach. Right? Right? very easy for a false teacher or just an ignorant Christian who's zealous to mislead people with the Word of God. They're saying God's Word says this, and it does not. And that is not where you want to go. Like I said, talk about your book club if you have an opinion, but not the Word of God. And this is why the local church, or in the local church, Satan loves to go after leadership. Teachers, elders, pastors because they know if they can take them down that he can crush the entire congregation they go after those people same well bridling the tongue is so difficult that he then says in the second half of verse two it says if anyone is never at fault in what he says once again talking about the tongue he is a perfect man he's able to keep his whole body in check Now, the word perfect there typically means uh, complete or mature, okay? And so James here is saying that if you can find a man, someone who can bridle his tongue and it never gets him in trouble, then he is someone in whom can keep his whole body in check. You can find that guy, whose tongue never gets him in trouble, always says the right thing, never says anything stupid, false, or errant, or anything else, that guy is going to be able to keep his whole body in check. Simply meaning, that's how difficult it is to control the tongue. If you can do that, you should have the ability, he's saying, to restrain the rest of your body. If you can control the tongue, you can control anything else, is what he's saying. As MacArthur points out, he says, if the Holy Spirit has control of the most volatile and obstinate part of your being, how much more prone to his control will the rest of our lives be? If the Holy Spirit has gotten control of your tongue, can you imagine how he'll be able to work through all of you, is what he's ultimately saying there. And so with all this being said, James is now going to go forward and he's going to give three illustrations of how the tongue, just a small part of the body, has a considerable amount of power. First two illustrations are going to deal with the effect of a controlled tongue and, of course, the third on the damage that it can cause if it is unrestrained. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and they're driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Whoops, did I I do that right? Yeah. Okay. So both illustrations, uh, as you can see, are very simple here. They're very easy to understand, and, and that's true even in, in the first century, by the way. The, the bits of horses and a ship and its rudders were very common to the time period of, of, of course, when this was written, and was a very common illustration there in the, the, the area there of the Mediterranean world. Matter of fact, one, uh, one commentator said, you would have to be an illiterate peasant <laughs> if you cannot understand this. I'm going, well, Good. As we talk about the simple, right? <laughs> Sometimes we need something that's simple, right? So, number one in verse three, you have that small bit, he says, that is put into the mouth of a horse. Anybody here ride horses? Ever ridden a horse? Few of you? Yeah? Yeah, you that little small bit that goes into the mouth of a horse. Now, I don't know back then, but today, the average weight of a horse is somewhere, where they say, between 800 and 2,200 pounds. That's pretty big. There's a lot going on right there, okay? But that little bit, no pun intended, that, that small bit goes on top of the horse's tongue, okay? It's only five inches wide. Five inches wide, that little that little bit. But when connected with the bridle, when connected with the reins, the person riding it can move that horse wherever he wants to go. See, it controls their head and then... It will therefore control everything. It will control their entire body. Once again, this is 800 or up to 200 or 2,000 pounds. Number two, in verse four, we have the same concept with the ship. Here in verse four, though, he tells us two things that made the ships that way very difficult to control. Notice there in the verse, number one, they were large. And number two, he says they were driven by strong winds. But even with that being the case, what does he say next? He says they are steered by a very small rudder. Now, I looked that up just to make sure. It literally means very small. It means the most minimal. A very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Say, Think about that for a second. This a, a, a large ship, extremely strong winds. But that little rudder will lead it wherever it wants to go. And therefore, folks, listen, how important it is to retain control over that rudder. Makes sense. We're talking about the boat. How important it is to have control of the rudder. It controls the whole thing. And if that boat is large and if there's strong winds, you want to have control of it. Okay? You control the whole ship. James is using this illustration, folks, to show us, as you probably get it, the power of the tongue. This is the illustration to show us the power of the tongue. Something that small, he's saying, can have such a huge influence. I mean, think about yourself. You think, what's the percentage of the, my tongue that carried to my body? I don't know, less than 1%, right? It can do great things when handled properly. It can. I mean, think about the words that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. It changed her life. The words that came out of his mouth changed her life as well as all those who listened to her. Think about Peter's sermon. And it was a great sermon. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, he gave a phenomenal sermon that day. But what came out of his mouth caused 3,000 people to place their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Here's one you probably don't know of. On April 21st in 1855, a man named Edward Kimball. Anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? I didn't think so. He went into a Boston shoe store, just like anybody else going for shoes. But while he was in there, he decided to share Jesus Christ at a shoe store with a young man by the name of D.L. Moody. And we all know what took place after that, don't we? He was one of history's greatest evangelists, and that ministry is still going on today. What is that, 170 years later? The speaking of the tongue, some things can change lives, can change generations. Powerful things can happen when we use the tongue correctly. But sadly, there's the other side of that coin. Being very small, it can still cause great destruction. Of course, as you know, this is the point that James is making. How many here have ever gotten in trouble from something they said? Z, you liar. Okay, okay. If nobody raised their hand, you liar, your pants are on fire as we speak. Notice verse 5. Okay. Verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So you notice he begins with the word likewise, right? He begins with the word likewise, which we understand because he's using that small bit. He's using that small rudder as an example. And he's simply saying likewise, just like those two small things, right? So likewise, he says the tongue, just like those two other things, is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. okay? Now, notice that James very specifically shows how out of proportion... It is when he speaks on the size of the tongue, which is very small, and yet the magnitude of its exploits. What does he say? They are great, great. Tongue's very small, but exploits are great, huge. Okay. Matter of fact, uh, the Greek word there is mega, megas. Now the words "great boast" are simply saying that the tongue can influence multitudes. And we typically think of that as a positive, and it can be a positive, no question. The tongue can instruct the ignorant. The tongue can encourage the dejected. The tongue can comfort the sorrowing. It can also soothe the dying. You might say simply that the tongue can be used to build people up. No question about it, right? But sadly, those boasts... When he talks about boasting, that's typically a very much of a negative, isn't it? It's a negative, and those boasts are typically very, very harmful, and therefore they tear people down. The person I see that everybody in this room is going to know about, the person I see right now who does that more than anybody is Donald Trump. You may like his politics, and that's fine. He did some great things as far as his policies, but his mouth is the most vile, tearing down, slanderous thing you've ever, I've ever seen in politics. He even rips on people's wives. He even talks about, uh, calls them ugly. He will rip you, he'll even say, you, you wouldn't even be breathing if it wasn't for me, you're so stupid. I mean, the things that he says are as vile as it gets that come out of that man's mouth. He's probably, and I say sadly, the best example of what it is of what you don't want to be. How harmful the mouth, the tongue, can be. That's what he's known for. He he had good policies, but the man has no character because of what he says. He can't keep his mouth shut. Folks, as we know, the tongue can sway men to violence. It can crush the human spirit. It can destroy reputations. It can spread distrust and hate. And think about this for a second. It can bring a nation to the brink of war. Think about that. A war because of what somebody said. A little closer to home, it can destroy the local church, and I know I've, I want to ask you to raise your hand because I've, I've asked this before. But I know many people have been in churches that have been wrecked and destroyed, and it starts as what somebody says. Think about families. Think about marriages that have been destroyed because of the tongue. Destroyed, and this is where James brings us the final illustration of the damage. If it is unrestrained, read the end of verse 5 with me just one more time. He says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. As many of you know, like I think of Aaron, you have to have a spark -er arrestor, right, on your bike. Because a spark can start a fire. You're supposed to have a spark -er arrestor. A spark of rust, folks, can start a fire. Any little tiny thing that can be innocent. The smallest spark can grow into, as you know, an inferno. It can destroy thousands and thousands of acres. It can kill countless animals and even, yes, take the lives of human beings. On October 8th, 19 I'm sorry, 1871, many of you probably know this, a lantern in a barn. For you history buffs, this lantern was supposedly kicked over by a cow, but it started what is known today as the Great Chicago Fire. 17,500 buildings were destroyed. Wow. 300 people were killed, 125,000 people we're now homeless, all because of a small lantern. It's amazing what can happen, that, just that little small lantern. And the one thing that we must remember, folks, is that a fire can continue to burn forever. It can, as long as it has something to burn. But just keep going. Likewise, things stated with a tongue can crush relationships forever. Or, if you will, for a lifetime. How many of you know people? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you know people, or maybe you're involved in something yourself? Uh, I've had family this way. They will never, and some never did. They're passed away. There was an issue of something that was said in their life, they never reconciled it. They died holding somebody accountable to whatever little thing because of something they said and they went to their grave. They would never reconcile it. But it was simply something that was said as if it could never be forgiven. I think that's very sad, but it goes to show you how powerful the tongue is and how it can affect so many people. One line out of our mouths, if we happen to remember it, whatever that may be, can keep on destroying somebody year after year after year, depending upon what was said. That's why Proverbs chapter 17, verses 27 and 28 says, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought-wise if he keeps silent and discerning If he holds his tongue, sometimes a lot of us have to stop real quick and think before we say something, right? Because we've all made that mistake. And therefore, to close this morning with verse 6, he says, the tongue also is a fire. It's a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire. And it itself is set on fire by hell. And so he begins the verse by saying that the tongue is also a fire. Now, he's obviously not talking about the goodness of a fire, right? You can get warmth from a fire, you can cook with a fire, you get power from a fire. But he's obviously not talking about that. He's using this as a, as a metaphor about how the tongue can be destructive. Okay, Coming off of the illustration from verse 5, he's saying when it's out of control, it can be devastating. So much that he says what? He says it is a world of evil. That's kind of rough, isn't it? A world of evil among the parts of the body. It's as if to say it is a vast system of iniquity your tongue, your speech, your mouth. No other member of our physical body has comparable power and influence for evil. None. None. One commentator says, it describes it as a a microchasm of evil among our members. It is a vile, wretched, and wicked scheme of fleshly humanness. No other bodily part has such far-reaching potential for disaster and destruction as the tongue, as the tongue. Matter of fact, James here says it corrupts the whole person. Do you see that? He says it sets the whole course of his life on fire. It's as if James just continues to expand this. The tongue can just keep getting worse and worse and worse. There's no part of a person's life that a corrupt tongue cannot affect. As you know, for the most part, we are known for the things that we say, are we not? Most people have a pretty good idea of what makes us tick. Most people have a pretty good idea of who we are if they simply listen to what we say. They're already going to make up an opinion, a viewpoint, based on what we say. Therefore, a destructive tongue is going to reveal our unrighteousness. A destructive tongue is going to reveal our sinfulness. It reveals the corruptness of who we are. It shows, as I said earlier, what's going on on the inside, doesn't it? Because what's in here is coming out. Period. No way around it. It's telling people something. One commentator said, it is as though all the wickedness in the whole world were wrapped up in this little piece of flesh. There are few sins people commit in which the tongue is not involved. And finally, bringing this ever-expanding depiction of the tongue to a close, James says, it is itself set on fire by hell. Well, holy smokes. (laughs) That's, That's a pretty serious depiction there. The word hell there is the word Gehenna. There are three words for hell in the Greek. The, this one is Gehenna. It, it, the name comes from the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Okay? And if you might remember, this was a place for human sacrifice. Parents would throw their children into the fire to worship the god called Moloch. Okay? Because it was a massive fire. They would literally throw their babies into the fire. Now, eventually, that was stopped under King Josiah. And therefore, at that point, it became a garbage dump that literally burned nonstop, okay? Because people kept throwing their garbage in there, even dead animals and whatnot. just kept getting fed and kept getting fed and kept getting fed. And as you know, you give fuel to a fire, it just keeps burning. So the fuel never went out. The fire never went out. And that's why it became a depiction of Hell. Eternal flame just never went out. That's why it's used and described as hell. Hell, as you know, from Matthew 25, 41, was created for Satan and his angels. That was the reason it was created. Now, folks, even though the tongue is neutral and can be used for good, can be used for evil as well. I believe the point that James is trying to make here is that it is predominantly predominantly used for evil and therefore it is a tool for Satan because typically you can be found to please him with what you say and not please God when you get to a point when you say the tongue is set on fire by hell (laughs) you know it's a horrible horrible influence it is destructive I close with the words from verses 9 and 10. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the mouth, the same mouth, come praise and cursing. My brothers, he says, this should not be. So many times, we talk about how you and I, we talk about we have been the victim of someone else's tongue. I'm sure everyone here has said at one time or another they have been the victim of someone else's tongue, something they said. But do we ever flip that around and say, how many times have others been the victim of ours? It goes both ways, doesn't it? We, we always beat up. Somebody said this about me. Somebody this, somebody that. It always comes back to me. And that's, I'm sure all those things are true. But how many times does somebody else say that when you're the person, or we are the person they're talking about? I want us to remember that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this challenge, and no question it is a challenge. It certainly causes us, reminds us of what we do and, and, and to make sure our tongue is not destructive. You know, even little things we think of, we even jokingly call it the S word. We don't use the word stupid because that is a very demeaning term. Well, we're not here to be politically correct. We simply just want to be biblical. Uh, God, uh, give us the grace, give us the encouragement not to speak, not to talk like everyone else. Lord, uh, help people to know based on what we say and what we don't say, help people to see that we are believers in Christ and there has been a transformation take place, which is why we are not like the world in anything, but in certainly our tongue as well. Lord, it is something that uh, I mentioned a couple of times. It is the most difficult thing to overcome. And so, Lord, we know by your Holy Spirit, it can be done. And so, Lord, guide us in our walk. uh, Remind us of what we say and how we say that we would not uh, become destructive to others. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.